Hi, I'm Kim Kuklitz, and I'm the founder of Stance. And I'm Sarah Zanbergen. I'm the ambassador for Stance, and this is the Take Back Talk Back podcast. We're here to open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations like this. Kim, do you miss traveling with me? I certainly do. I mean, that's when we came up with great ideas around the stance movement. One of my favorites, I have to say, is when we came up with the idea for this very podcast. I remember booking that flight, and for some unknown reason, I booked us seats with someone in between us. So I remember getting on and uh, and asking that guy, hey, do you want to switch with me so I can sit with my friend here? He said, no, no, I'm good. And uh, I think he regretted that because we spent the rest of the flight talking over him, but coming up with really great ideas for this very podcast, right? Yeah, he's going to think twice before he says no next time. (laughs) So, sir, if you're listening, we're very sorry, but look what came out of it. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) But I'm happy to say that even though we haven't gotten on a lot of planes, uh, especially not this year, we still talk about confidence a lot. And for our listeners, I want to talk a little bit about why financial confidence is so important. So, Kim, how has financial confidence or maybe even a lack thereof touched your life? Well, something particularly memorable that, you know, seems like it happened yesterday was a conversation uh, I had between my husband and I, who just happens to be my portfolio manager. One day I'd left my investment statement on the kitchen table. And when he noticed it, he asked me, you know, do you have any questions about your statement? And I said, no. And he said, do you understand it? And I said, no, like, it's no big deal. You know, you're my husband and my portfolio manager. I trust you. His response to that was, that's not good enough, Kim. That really got me thinking, was this just me? I mean, I spoke to my friends and my colleagues at the bank who are smart, savvy women. What I found out was that I wasn't alone. And I also found out that there was a common theme. Yes, some of them had investments, but no, they didn't know what the investments were. Their husband or financial planner looked after the finances. That's a really interesting story, Kim. And this is something that we really want to accomplish with the Take Back Talk Back podcast is having those tough conversations that we often shy away from. I want to make it okay to talk about our lessons, our challenges, and maybe even our mistakes. A mistake that I talk about, and I I used to really shy away from telling this story, but now I've told it on a few stages and it's become a little second nature. So it's a situation where I wish I had had more financial confidence. So this happened about 10 years ago. I was engaged to my long-term partner and we were looking at buying a house. Um, We were in our early 20s. He really wanted to buy a three-bedroom, two-story house um, with the intention of us retiring in it. At the time, I worked as a teller for a bank, didn't make that much money. I was thinking we should buy a condo or maybe like a smaller starter home. I left a lot of the decision-making up to him and I trusted his judgment, not bothering to learn anything for myself. Mistake number one. Mistake number two, I think a lot of first-time homebuyers make this mistake, is taking the entire amount that you're pre-qualified for. I didn't research the difference between insured and uninsured mortgages, which now that I've had a few years in the uh, mortgage industry, I know that makes a big difference. Long story short, when my partner and I split, I lost a lot of money. Now, here's the thing. And if you're out there listening, I don't blame you. 
I have no one to blame but myself. I really could have educated myself. I worked at a bank. I had no excuse. Those resources were available to me. I could have asked more questions. And I think that that really segues into stance. You're not the only one, Sarah. You can't blame yourself, but you know, you won't make the same mistake again. Sometimes we have to go through lessons like that so we don't make the same mistake. My initial assumption before we started Stance was that there must be a huge gap between women and men when it comes to financial literacy. It's our money. Why aren't more of us taking ownership? I couldn't let it go. I knew I had to explore this a little more. And at the time, I was a 25-year exec at the bank. So why didn't I take ownership of my finances? And that's what's amazing, is that all of these conversations and questions led us to the inception of Stance. So can we recreate some of that magic right now? Yes, absolutely. Today's guest is the president and CEO of Equitable Bank, Andrew Moore. I've been fortunate to work closely with Andrew for the past decade. And when I approached him with the concept of stance, he said yes. Well, he said a lot of things, but 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 mainly he said yes, that's what's important for this. But he made it conditional on it not being a pop-up. He wanted it to have staying power. That meant commitment to me. Please join us in welcoming Andrew Moore. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Sarah. So... Equitable is Canada's challenger bank. What exactly is a challenger bank at its core? Well, it just means we're, we're disruptors. We're looking to challenge the status quo and do things differently. Looking at kind of how the banking industry works and how can we do things differently to make it better for our clients so that we've got realistic solutions that work for them, help make their lives easier, get a high return on their money. That's all of those kinds of things that banking is, prevent, is, is expected to provide to, to people at large. As the CEO of a challenger bank, do you get the sense that women feel invited in financial spaces? I mean, should financial institutions, should they be doing a better job of communicating with their female customers? Well, I think I think certainly they probably should be doing a better job, frankly, of communicating with all their customers. I think in particular that the women are a group that tend to be overlooked by, by the financial services industry. We know that 73% of women are unhappy with the financial services industries. There's a lot of jargon that we use that isn't helpful and is frankly unnecessary. So when I think about it that way, there is definitely a way to make it feel more inclusive. There are no bad questions. And frankly, you know, a lot of women work outside of finance and those kinds of jobs where we'd expect it to have uh, financial literacy. So we're trying to provide those solutions and help people really understand what they're getting into when they get themselves into a financial product. So that's really where Stance came from in the first place. So... Andrew, you heard my story before, and I told our listeners this in the intro, my situation um, with my my house, not my house anymore, but I can go over and over this in my head and, you know, how I should have asked more questions or done more research. But I think, and I don't think this just applies to my situation because I see it a lot that some women struggle with asking questions. So my question for you is, how can we as a society do better in supporting women's financial journeys? You know, it has to start with uh, looking into our souls at the bank every day because uh, as a challenger bank, if we're trying to do things better and challenge the status quo, there are clearly things that can be done better in, in these areas. And uh, there's a lot of complexity in finance. And we need to be open to communicating the messages around uh, around what can be done better, make sure you understand the pitfalls of anything that you're getting into. And we need to be continuously promoting this. It's just not, not one month a year to be promoting the idea that we need to be getting to to be broadening our understanding of financial matters. 
it's frankly a lifelong journey. Um, you know, you, you have the example of buying a house. There are other things. So as you get into retirement and so on, that there are also things that need to be understood. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's no guarantee because you made an early mistake that uh, you won't make a later mistake as you're, as you're trying to face different challenges. So I think clearly preparing yourself for life's journey is really important and, and us helping us as a bank, helping women in particular, you know, follow that life's journey. And if I could just add, I, I think I like what you said about a lifelong journey. It doesn't matter how young, how old you are. Money is always a part of your life. And um, I, for myself, my personal experience being involved in Stance the way I am has made me ask questions more frequently and learn more about my finances as we go along. So I couldn't agree more. So Andrew, tell me, as a CEO, what made you approve this financial confidence project? I mean, a lot of people could say, oh, it's easy for a CEO to write a check. I mean, who's writing checks now? But anyway, but there's more here than you just throwing money at something. You're not just a CEO. You're a husband, a father, and a son. So let's get to the heart of it here. What values and beliefs went into approving the Stance Initiative? You were particularly forceful in, around describing this, Kim. And I, I think one of the things that really, uh, you know, I found compelling argument is, is how many people how many women are left to deal with the financial affairs of their families you know, because men generally die before their spouses or very often. Um, I mean, there's the statistics, that's the reality. And that's the experience I've had in my own life with my father passing away before my mother and uh, him having traditionally looked after most of the financial affairs of the family, I think in a fairly responsible way. I mean, I wouldn't say that he was particularly financially literate either. And so, you know, certainly I'm helping my mother in that regard now. And all of my other female members of the family that matter to me, my wife and my children, they all work in healthcare and they're bright and know a lot about things around healthcare, but they don't work, they don't know a lot about finances. And frankly, you know, they'd like it to be the background of their lives to allow them to do the things they want to do, but not necessarily something I have to spend a lot of time focused on. So helping them understand what they need to know to be successful in their own lives and managing their financial affairs, I think it's, it's something that's, it's really important. These are, these are smart people. Um, and sometimes, you know, the advertising of, of financial products and so on gets in the way of what they really need to do to empower themselves in their lives, things they're forming relationships, for example, how do you think about money in those kinds of circumstances? I think women are in a unique position compared to men in that regard. And if we can just, you know, help, help some people understand that better and, and make some better decisions and, you know, we're better off as a society. And that's our broader goal as Equitable Bank is to try and make our, our society better off overall. No, exactly. And I can tell you that we've talked a lot about vulnerable situations for women. And in some cases, some women, you know, they're confident uh, with their with their finances. But we always, you know, we've said for those that may be okay today, what happens if they're in a, in a vulnerable situation? And I can tell you, um, and you know me, Andrew, but my mother passed away and we were just talking about it the other day, how complex and just you know, how do you deal with, with a will? And what does it mean to probate a will? And, you know, knowing where bank accounts are. And I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. And so, you know, obviously, you know, I've got a financial background, but it still, <laughs> it didn't really help me uh, to navigate, you know, what I'm going through right now with trying to deal with my mom's estate. It's kind of, okay, learn as you go. But, you know, now that I've done it, I feel that much better. And sometimes it's it's about taking, in this case, it wasn't the initiative because I was the executor, but, but taking the initi- initiative to go outside of your comfort zone and do something that, you know, you traditionally wouldn't do or wouldn't know how to do 
it really gives you that confidence after. So what advice would you really want, you know, your daughters, your mother, your wife to have? Um, and why is it important to you that all of these women are financially confident? Having money in your bank account is actually just an important thing to be able to enable your dreams, you know, whether it's uh, going on to graduate school or, um, or traveling to some place where you, you think that you're going to find a certain sort of path in life. You know, those are critical things. So it's not really about amassing wealth uh, in, a, in a sort of flamboyant way to buy trivial things. It's about fundamental things. How can you make sure your kids can go to the right, right school? Maybe can you, you can take that trip to some place where you're going to get some particular spiritual enjoyment. So um, not having money is a stress, but more as a platform from which you can build a, a, a purposeful life, I think is, is really the critical driver of thinking about this. And you know, as women want to pursue purposeful lives, unfortunately, they need to actually think about their financial affairs or need to have them in, in, in shape in order to do that. And I think way too often you meet people whose dreams have been held back a little bit by you know, the lack of financial management through the process. So they've actually worked hard but made some financial errors that, that, that constrain them from really reaching their full potential, potentially their full happiness, you know, those kinds of things. So I think it's really important that we, we think about that and, and actually feel sort of empowered and confident with money so that it's a, it's a positive in people's lives as opposed to a negative. And it doesn't have to be a lot of it there to, to make that true as long as you're sort of under control and you're working with it in harmony. Definitely. And Andrew, I remember we had an event um, last year, and I, I always keep saying back when we were allowed to be in rooms with each other, but um, we were speaking about emotions. And I think that that's interesting what you just said. And, you know, money is really a tool. However, a lot of times when we think about money, we're thinking and we're feeling guilty and we're feeling shameful and we're feeling fearful. And uh, what are your thoughts on that money and emotion? I thought that was really compelling insight when we were at the, it was the Toronto Public Library. We had a lot of people really sharing this, bearing their souls a little bit about how they felt about the complex relationship with money, which frankly, probably, you know, I, I share many of those emotions actually, even, even this stage of my life. And, you know, it is tricky because, you, you know, on the one hand, you've got bills to pay and taxes to pay and all of those things that, that aren't particularly positive. Now, on the other hand, it's this great enabler, right, of, of the things you actually want to do with your life. So, it's complicated. I don't think it should really be an emotional thing. I think it should be a fairly emotionless thing that's a tool from which you can then set the framework of what's possible with your own life. You know, clearly, if, you, if you've got a, you know, less wealth, then there's less opportunity to do things. But there's many things you can do you know, within that context and feel happy with it and feel that you're using the tool to the best of, best of its ability or best, best that you can utilize that particular resource that you have. And perhaps maybe when you talk about emotions, maybe that's why some women defer, you know, the ownership of their financial affairs to either their husband or financial advisor. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that either of those are bad, but it's about knowing it, right? And understanding it. And I would think, you know, you as a father and even me as a mother with my daughter um, is that I never want her to rely on anybody else for money. I mean, listen, she's relying on me and I'd like to I'd like to cut that right sooner than later, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But anytime soon, but but all joking aside, right, she has to be independent and know how money works and not think that, you know what, somebody else can do this for me. Because we always say, if you're not looking after your money, who is? So, you know what, thank you for that, Andrew. It, it makes a lot of sense. So 
the the first thing I'm going to go back a little bit, but the first thing that we did with Stance was research. After we did our research, we we thought, you know what? Let's go out a bit and see what the general public feels. So we did a survey. The survey went out to about 1,200 respondents, and it was mainly around what women wanted to learn about and where they needed support. And a couple important stats that came out of that research was that 90% of women will be the sole financial decision maker in their lives. And the other one was that 61% of women did well on a financial literacy test. However, only 30% of these women were financially competent. Women are a lot more financially educated than we often get credit for. What do you think about what we have come to refer to as the confidence gap? You know, to some extent, we joke about this, Kim, but, you know, but I, I do actually believe that men are overconfident about their financial knowledge in, 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 in contrast to that. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, so overly confident. And I think there's a, there's a significant gap when I look at the banking industry and see the complexity of the products being offered. And even though I'm, you know, inside the game, if you like, or inside the industry, I'm, I'm still learning things all the time. So I think that we probably women's lack of confidence is, is, is pretty well placed, but we've got to do something to change that. But that's, that's not good enough. And, and, um, I think that if you've only got, if you're that unconfident in the feeling that in your financial matters, then your ability to actually ask the right questions and get the right, right advice is probably not there. So actually being confident that you recognize the gap and recognize that there's a gap to be closed is really the critical thing here. Again, I, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, and the learning continues and it doesn't matter what stage of your life you're in. So we want to change gears a little bit. So with the events of 2020, we are now in what many are calling a she session. So it has been said, um, I've read a bit of research on this, that 70% of women for varying reasons related to the pandemic have been pushed out of the workplace or held back in their careers. So as a CEO, what is the responsibility of a company like Equitable to battle this? Well, it certainly starts at home in terms of how do we actually think about people within our own institution. So we've been, uh, we haven't laid anybody off through the recession or the she session, as you say. So I think that, that's where it starts. And of course, you know, one of the real issues here is are the underlying issues that lead to that problem. So, you know, certain industries, particularly hard hit, tend to be quite sort of female orientated. So things like uh, tourism and so on. And a lot of women working in those industries who are particularly poorly hit. Then, of course, the other issues, if kids are at home, how do, how do women get out of the house to continue to be in employment? So particularly challenging issues. And certainly as, as a bank, we're trying to do the best we can to support our customers and clients that are in the industries that have been badly affected. We're a mortgage lender, so we've been offering a lot of deferrals and people have to make the mortgage payments so they can actually relax a little bit to to, uh, to allow their businesses to get back on their feet once the pandemic's behind us. But it's really challenging. You know, certainly I, I feel that the best thing we've done is, is look after our own people. Sarah, why do you think women struggle with asking questions? I mean, what's the big deal? Why do we fear that? Oh, that is a loaded question. And I know I can speak to my personal experiences here. For me, I still sometimes stop myself when I'm afraid that I'll be viewed as uneducated. But um, I'm happy to say that in my time with Stance, I've learned a lot and I've started to push myself in my career, ask more questions and learn more. After all, you don't learn if you don't ask. But what I wonder is, do you think that this is a generational thing? What was your experience? Can I tell you a secret, Sarah? Yes, please. I still struggle at times with this. It's almost like 
finding when is the right time and what is the right question. Will it make sense? Is it worth asking? Thank you for sharing that, Kim. Honestly, for me, it's relieving and really refreshing to know that senior leaders face the same obstacles I do. So knowing that, do you think that we're looking at a shift here? There's definitely a shift. And Stance is a big part of that. By confidently taking ownership of your affairs, it doesn't end with finance. Overall, it empowers women to be self-sufficient in their professional and personal lives. This really matters if we want to see more women entrepreneurs and leaders. That's a great point. I know we've talked about it, and I think we touch on it uh, in this episode. Michelle Romanow saying, you don't fix a confidence problem just by telling women to be more confident. So in your opinion, how do you think we go about building confidence when it comes to finances? Ask questions. I can't say it enough. Start learning and start talking about money more. Plain and simple. With Stance, we want to build a community that is financially literate for all genders. We want to educate women who may end up in a vulnerable situation. Otherwise, it could result in a steep learning curve. I ran operations for about 18 years at the bank. One thing that stuck out to me when a mortgage payment was returned insufficient funds, when we needed to contact the borrowers, if we got the wife on the phone, more often than not, we would hear, my husband handles that, call back later. Sarah, believe it or not, this still happens today. Something's wrong here. This is somebody's home, their safe haven. Hearing that response that the wife has no clue about the roof over her head, what happens if that roof could collapse at any time? This is the biggest investment of your life. Foundation of concrete. If you don't know your financial situation, it becomes more like a house of cards, and that is not a steady foundation. I hear acquaintances of mine talk about women post-divorce saying, I didn't know. They didn't know anything about their family financial situation. I'm going to scream if I hear that again. It is your job to know. Bottom line, it's your money. If you're not looking after it, who is? Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, I spent a lot of my early 20s relying on my male partner. Now that I'm in my late 30s, knowing what I know, I don't want to rely on anyone. And that fuels everything I do. So... Over the course of these past few years that we've been uh, doing stance, we've established that there is a disconnect between women's financial literacy and that confidence. So where do we go with that? And and as a bank, how does a bank play a part in closing this gap? Like, are there any particular services or products that can actually help with that? Well, certainly we're lobbying for things that might change the banking environment, you know, more generally. So the big one that we talk a lot about is open banking and how this is a concept that's been taking on or off around the world. It's been a bit slow coming to Canada, too, too slow for my taste. But it would allow you to have more information about your total financial position, which I think would, would again, we could put, imagine building apps that would sit on top of an open banking framework, perhaps particularly aimed at the needs of women uh, that could then consolidate all of your data and give you some better advice in a, in a really sensible way that, that talks to women. And of course, in our own modest way, with, with you know what you're doing with with Stance, Sarah and Kim is is you know critical to this. Um, you know, I think we only play play part of closing the gap, though. You know, sometimes a lot of people talk about banks promoting financial literacy, and I think we have to be super careful. That are we the right people to be communicating around that? So there's all kinds of other interesting bloggers and independent folks that that are commenting about this. And 
holding the industry to account. And they, of course, have a, an important role to play as well. So another theme that comes up a lot for us is investing. And I know how I feel about it. Women wonder if they're entitled to financial advice. I find that really strange, but they do. We often hear the question, do I make enough money to hire a financial planner? Where do I even find one? There's a concept that financial advice is only for the wealthy. Yeah, it often feels like an exclusive club that I don't have the password for. No, I'm not allowed. <laughs> what do you think, Andrew? <laughs> uh, well, I think, I think there are many options out there beyond you know the formal whole-star financial planning, if you like, and you know, things like robo-advisors emerging. That's certainly one of the reasons why we support fintech. So, you know, maybe a robo-advisor is a place to, to start fairly early in your career that can help you move along the, the journey. But I do think uh, going and talking to financial planners, a lot of good ones out there, you do actually unfortunately need to survey the market to make sure you've got the right ones. Uh, but they're, they're willing to speak to you. There are, there are some, for example, particularly focused on women's needs as for a financial planner. I'm sure those people might, you know, wealth fit some people. The service is there, but it is a strange case of having to go around and do the footwork and don't deal with the first person you meet. Um, in the day, there are some people more on the sales side than really helping you, helping you through the journey of life and find somebody who really understands what you're trying to achieve and you can trust where you've got third-party references from other people in similar circumstances. And I do think, actually, you can start with fairly modest amounts of money and, and uh, take it from there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the things that Sarah and I found very interesting when we surveyed some of our friends and our colleagues, when we asked the question, you know, do you have investments? Oh, yeah, I've got investments. Very confident that. And okay, that's good. Like, what kind of investments do you have? You know, equities, you know, mutual funds. What, what, what is it? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know because my husband looks after that or my financial planner. I said, well, but if you were invested in, you know, let's just say one of these mega companies, and I, I don't want to give anybody free advertising here. So we're just going to say hypothetical company. But if you're invested in, in, let's say, one of these big box stores and you find out that they go bankrupt, like, isn't that something that you sh should want to know what your portfolio is made up of? Like, and, and when I say it, it sounds common sense, like, of course. But all the women that we surveyed, most of them had no clue of what their portfolio looked like, which I, I thought was quite shocking. I, I don't know about you, Sarah, uh, what you thought about that. I think that there's definitely a hesitation. Um, and I, I, I speak from my experience here is that I don't want to ask questions. And if I'm sitting in with somebody at a bank and they're going to say, okay, Sarah, we're going to put you, you're, we're going to put your money in company XYZ. And I say, okay, um, that sounds great. And oh, you're going to get a great return. And this is, you know, everything that you need to know. If I don't understand, I might not feel comfortable to put my hand up and say, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what this means. And so I think that there's, I think there's a responsibility on the client side, but I also think there's a responsibility on the side of the financial advisor to say, okay, tell me where you're at. Tell me what you know um, before we get started. What have you researched so far? And um, where does your knowledge level lie? So I can make sure that I'm striking the balance. I don't want to be talking down to you and assuming that you don't know. Um, but I also don't want to, you know, go in and like Andrew, you said, you talked about the jargon. The financial industry has so much jargon. And we are at a bit of an advantage. We work at a bank. We've heard a lot of it. But to your point, 
you know, you, you, your family is in the medical field doesn't necessarily mean they know what an ETF is or, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that there's definitely a gap that we can close on both sides. There's the communication piece that I think advisors need to really learn how to communicate with women. I mean, people of all genders, quite honestly, more effectively, but then there's also the onus on us to say, you know what, we need to be comfortable saying, I don't know this and that's okay. Absolutely, Sarah. Absolutely. We have to do our part, right? It's okay not to know stuff. (laughs) That's how you learn. That's how you learn. (laughs) But we know everything, Andrew, so don't worry. (gasps) So... That asks me, actually brings me to another question. So self-education research can only go so far. Um, Google is one of my closest friends. But if somebody has a really specific question and doesn't quite feel comfortable asking a financial advisor, what then? Well, I think there is, there is a lot of information, clearly. You know, Spence is helping. Uh, you've got the RC Expert scheme there. You've got uh, things like Mortgage Professionals Canada, Borrowell. There's a lot of information out there. You know, I would say that if you... If you don't know very much about investing and somebody's putting you into an individual stock, then you should change your financial advisor right away because I do think a more diversified portfolio makes sense. So unfortunately, you do have to read around. You know, There's some very good kind of basic books on finance that probably can, can give you the, the headline uh, answers. I'm sure Stance recommends some of them that can really make sure you avoid the bigger potholes. But you do need to be careful and take responsibility for that yourself. But I think you know a basic book on basic financial planning primer would be a good place to start. Something I found really interesting here when we were talking to Andrew is bringing up his relatives who are in the healthcare field. And I think that that's pretty common. I know for me, I often just assume if somebody is, you know, a successful doctor in that field, obviously you're going to have your finances together. But hearing Andrew say this, if I flipped it on its head and said, okay, we work at a bank and, you know, we're really intelligent in finance, say, do we automatically know about healthcare and the jargon there? No, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and remember that article that we read about a female doctor? That doctor was very forthcoming about, I don't know anything about my finances. And I think, you know, it would be a real steep learning curve for me if I had to take control and do it myself. And do you remember, Sarah, we were like, huh? Wow. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we're, we're on to something here. So this actually kind of makes me think about the hesitation to take financial ownership in the first place. Where do you think that comes from? Well, we've noticed that so many of the emotions surrounding money are negative. Guilt, shame, embarrassment, fear. I mean, I'm going to tell you how I feel. (laughs) I feel bad spending money on myself. I feel like I have to spend it on my daughter. I've got this feeling. um, I feel guilty sometimes spending money because I want to make sure I leave something for my daughter. But obviously, I'm I'm going to leave something for her. But by the same token, uh, I need to enjoy my life and, and the money I work hard for as well. I feel that so viscerally when... I got out of high school. I started working right away and I still lived with my parents at home. I remember, you know, if I needed a new shirt for work, I would go out and buy it. And immediately upon coming home, I was always met with the question from my mother, how much did that cost? And did you really need that? And again, like I'm not saying that she was doing something wrong by saying that, but I think that there was a different learning opportunity there and she could have taught me more about budgeting um, and, and had that conversation. 
Absolutely. And I think, and not I think, I know everyone has been brought up differently uh, with understanding how money works. I mean, my upbringing was totally different from yours as it related to money. So my upbringing, if I borrowed a dollar from my mother, she posted it on the fridge to remind me every time I walked by the fridge. And you're probably laughing saying a dollar, but back then, a dollar was a lot of money to me. But it taught me the value of money, but didn't help with the guilt part. I'm going to be honest with that. I think there might be a happy medium between your mom's way and my mom's way. What do you think? (laughs) If we have a negative mindset about money, Sarah, it's inevitably going to impact the rest of our lives. We're being fed with money messages constantly. Think about TV. Every show we watch is about spending, whether it's fashion, whether it's interior decorating, all of that costs money. But how many messages on TV or radio are about saving? I mean, we know the banks will come out and, you know, during RSP season, you know, and they've got their products. That's great. It's like one time of the year. But but really, there aren't a lot of shows about saving your money and saving your money and feeling confident about spending your money on things that make you happy, right? At the same as at the same time budgeting. Budgeting is it seems so basic, but it's basic for a reason. We we all need it. And when I was in my early 20s, that area where I was bringing home my purchases and and being guilted about it, I I was really lost financially. And here's the thing. You know, there's no one waiting in the wings to teach me about money. And the lesson that I learned was I really needed to take that ownership myself. Taking financial ownership. Where have I heard that before? (gasps) Hmm, I don't know. Maybe on stance.ca? Thank you for listening to the Take Back Talk Back podcast, the podcast where we open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. You know what we don't talk about enough? The sneaky ways we lose money. Everyone is always so quick to blame coffee, and I have to say I'm sick of coffee getting such a bad reputation. I love coffee. I live on coffee. Please don't come for my coffee. There's something worse. Account fees. So many of us pay up to 20 bucks a month just to have our money in the bank. I have a word that could describe this, but I work for a bank, so maybe I'll just say it's poppycock. There is an alternative. EQ Bank doesn't charge monthly fees, transaction fees, interact e-transfer fees. There's no minimum balance, and you earn a high interest rate on every dollar. Skip the bank fees and have your coffee. The Take Back Talk Back podcast is brought to you by EQ Bank, Money Well Banked. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Equitable Bank. Any information provided is for information purposes only, and Equitable Bank makes no representations as to the validity, accuracy, or completeness or suitability of any content. You should seek the advice of a qualified professional or undertake your own research before making financial decisions. This podcast is produced by the phenomenal team at Quill. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify.